I want to I say this, though, before we get in as well. Um, you get out of the message what you pull out of the message, all right? And so I want to encourage you to lean in this morning, uh, allow God's word to, to, to speak to every single one of us, and, uh, and I promise you we'll leave this place better than, than how we came in. I don't know, show of hands, a little therapy session this morning, but let's just be real, okay? And, and don't be afraid to raise your hand in church, this is not a trick question. How many of you have ever blamed your personality for something? Come on. How many of you have ever made the same? It's just who, it's just who I am. It's how I was created, right? I was born this way, Lady Gaga said, okay? <clears throat> I think at, at some point or another, every single one of us has, has made the comment assessing a certain behavior or a certain way of doing things or a certain reason for saying something or, or thinking something. Every single one of us at one moment or another has blamed our personality for something in our lives. But what we fail to understand is that so many times we just allow it to run wild. We allow our personalities to, to run wild. And that's what I want to deal with this morning. The Bible actually has a lot to say about our personalities. And more specifically, how they need to be negotiated in this life that we, that we live. How many of you have ever taken a personality test before at, at one point or another? Many of us have. Um, I love the DISC test. That's, that's the personality uh, quiz or test that I've taken multiple, multiple times. And uh, believe it or not, my personality has never changed. In the amount of times, and I've probably taken it 15 times, um, just to see if I could change myself, um, I can't. The DISC test always comes back and says, says the same thing about me. And I am on the DISC test, I am a high I and a high D. I have nothing else. Nothing else whatsoever. So uh, the S and the C part of this disc test speak about the personalities that have like, uh, you, you are constant and you are secure and you are stable. I have none of that in my life. <laughs> whatsoever, all right? <laughs> Some of you are like, he's leading the church? Yes! <laughs> but, so I've got no S, no, no C. I'm high I, high D, which is this. I love people and I go fast. That's it. I'm a, I'm a driver. That's my, that's my personality, and I love people. So when paired together, I like to take people fast with me, okay? And I'm the life of the party. I like to be in the middle of it all. If you were to sit me at home and say, be still, I'd be like, no. Uh-uh. Some of you love being at home, right? You love having a fire going and cozying up with a blanket and a, and a sweater just left to your thoughts in a great novel to which I say, No! That is prison for me, okay? And uh, so I'm a high I, high D. My, my wife, on the other hand, she's like a D, C, S. She's got a lot of things going on, but mainly D. Like she is a, she is, and, and, and she's constant. She's got some of that C stuff going on. So we pair very, very well together. My wife and I are polar opposites from each other. She's the stable one. She's more secure in a lot of things. She's not bubbly everywhere like I am. She's not the social butterfly. She keeps our family sane, healthy, on track, and in a direction. Amen. That's my wife. <laughs> my mother-in-law says amen. That was bad. But our personalities are interesting things. And we love talking about them, right? We hate dealing with them. We will all gladly take personality tests and giggle and have fun with them and so on and so forth until we have to deal with them. 
until we have to work with them, and, and, until we have to bring some construction to them, until we have to rein them in, in in certain ways. That's when the work gets difficult. The reality is, is that we all have a personality, a unique, interesting, and purposefully designed personality, one that God has created us with. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that, that were formed for me when, uh, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, the Bible tells us that every single one of us, from the best parts of us to the worst parts of us, was created on purpose. God had a reason for making you the way that he made you. The thing about it is, though, is most of us go through life not ever really understanding why. Right? And that's a big question. Why? Why am I? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why am I this way? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I say things like that? Why do I think things like that? Why do I jump before I think? All right? Why can't I pull myself out of the, out of the shell that I'm in and, 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 and engage? Why can't I just go across the church and ask her out on a date? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's like, wait a second. <laughs> that wasn't for me. That was for the singles, okay? I'm married happily. Calm down. All right? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why am I, why am I, why, why am I? These are the questions that we ask. These personalities are a part of who we are. They're attached to our calling and our purpose. They help us navigate that life that God has designed us to live. However, they are also broken and marred due to sin, abuse, experiences, lack of discipline. You fill in the blanks. A personality in step with the Holy Spirit is one that brings effectiveness, purpose, and produces fruit. One not in check leads many times to destruction and, and hardship. Listen to Galatians 5, through 25. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, my natural part of me, the way that I believe that I am, with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What is Paul offering us? Well, he's offering us a new way to be human. A new way to understand that while my personality has both positive traits and negative traits, when it's paired up with the presence of God, when it's in step with the Spirit of God, I can actually live the life that God has called me to, not just the natural way I, I kind of have an inkling or a bent to. And our personalities are constantly at war with that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Author and speaker Tim LaHaye writes this, Temperament or personality influences everything you do, from sleep habits to study habits to eating style to the way you get along with other people. Humanly speaking, there is no other or influence in your life more powerful than your temperament and your personality. Think about that. There is no greater influence in our lives than our personality. We want there to be. Sometimes we need there to be, but for most of us, all of us, so he says, personality is the strongest thing that pushes us, pulls us in life. And this is no different for our man Philip. We're going to read about him right here in John, chapter 6, verses 
1 through 15. But who was Philip? Not many of us know who Philip was. We know who Matthew was. We know who Peter was. These guys were the popular disciples. But Philip, every shout Philip. Philip. He never gets, he never gets the, I, I think, the popularity due to him. And this is why maybe Philip, his name means in Greek, lover of horses. That's just for free. You need to know that because that's awesome, all right? His parents decide him, hey, what should we name our boy? Lover of horses. That's going to be his name. Philip. How would you like that attached to your name, right? It's my name. Philip. Uh, what's that mean? Lover of horses. What was that? Lover of equine. Does that make it better? So this is who Philip is. Lover of horses. It's the only name that we have for him throughout the entirety of the Gospels because it's safe to include that more than likely Philip came from a family of Hellenistic Jews, a Jewish family that had assimilated much of the culture, traditions, language, and customs of, of prevailing Greeks. All right? According to John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51, Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, also the home of Andrew and Peter. As well, we know that he was one of the first to follow Jesus, as well as introducing Nathanael to him and being the catalyst for Nathanael following Jesus. After that, we don't know much more about his pastor background. However, the book of John gives us great insight to who he was and more specifically his personality. Throughout what John records about him, it seems that Philip was a process person. Do I got any process people in here? Come on, show of hands if, if you can just, I'm a process person. I like A, B, C, and D, one, two, three. Okay, you, so you're the lover of horses in church this morning, all right? <laughs> he was a facts and figures type of guy. He played by the book. He was practically minded. He was not forward-thinking type of individual. He was just right there. I need the processes. Give me A, B, C, and D so I can do it. He more than likely was the one who appoint, was appointed by the group, the d- group of disciples, to work out travel, food, and accommodate. He was organized. He was the organizational dude in the ragtag group of, of disciples. He would have worked with Judas extensively because Judas, according to the Bible, he was actually put in charge of the money. So Philip and Judas would have been very, very much connected. He would plan and organize, Judas would pay for it, and everybody else would complain about it. Peter would be in the corner going, why can't we just walk through everything? Why can't we go? Just follow Jesus wherever he goes. And the rest of the disciples just stand there and watch all this unfold. This was Philip. All right? He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy. Probably pessimistic. Narrowly focused, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with identifying reasons things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic and sometimes a defeatist rather than a a visionary. This was his personality. It was his natural disposition, if you will. It was just who he was as a person. There are great strengths to his personality and great weaknesses. We know Philip had great knowledge of the Old Testament. And with that knowledge, he embraced Jesus immediately. This is the positive side of his relationship, or his personality. And followed him without hesitation because that was logical, and that is what you do with the information that you have before you. So Philip was the guy, unlike many of us, who said, okay, this is A, B, and C, Jesus equals one, two, three, follow him. That was Philip. He would be down like that, where the rest of us would be like, well, I don't know about my feelings. And 
all of these other things. Philip, Philip got it. That's what I love about his personality because there were some things that he could hurdle over and follow Jesus simply because of the way he, he was. That's a, that's a cool place to be. The rest of them took some convincing at times. And this was Philip. This was one side of him. He followed Jesus, no hesitation, no thinking about it. He had the facts, he had the figures, boom, let's go for it. However, it's in John 6, verses 1 through 15, that his personality starts to show through once again. We start to see the other side of his personality at work, the side that would bump against what Jesus was trying to teach him and show him. Now remember, I'm going somewhere with this. We need all of this context to get to what it is I want to drive into this morning. John chapter 6, finally, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, here is the conversation. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Watch Philip's response. He said this, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. We could, we could know if it was just 5,000 men in number, more than likely there was at least an equal proportion of, of women and then maybe a third to half of that of children. So we know that this crowd could number somewhere in the twelve to 14,000 plus range. It's a massive, massive crowd. So he had them sit down. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fists, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Massive story, amazing story, but what I want to focus in on is this conversation that takes place between Jesus and Philip, and the question that I find myself asking is this, why was Jesus testing him? What was he trying to do in Philip? I think the same thing that he's trying to do in us. The reality is that Jesus' story collides with our story, Philip's story, his desire to bring change to our lives by molding us all into all that he has been, that we've been designed by God to be. And there are times when our personality kicks against the very thing that God desires to do in our lives. You ever notice that before? Our personality rages against what Jesus wants to do practically in our lives. Many of us fight against it because it's like, that's not who I am. That's not my personality. I want to give you a news flash this morning. He doesn't care what your personality is. Some of us need to write that down. Because for too long we've allowed our natural disposition to dictate what it is that God wants to do in us. And it's right here that we see Jesus colliding with Philip and saying, lover of horses, there's a new thing for your life. And so he tests them. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time together 
this morning is focused on some observations concerning our personality, more specifically what we need to understand about them in light of God's redemptive plan in each of our lives. And please realize this, it does not matter what your personality is. For those of you who are like Philip, or for those of you who are like Peter, for those of you who are ADHD, for those of you who are constant quiet, for those of you who are extroverts, for those of you who are introverts, it does not matter what your personality is, these principles and observations apply to all of us. Because it doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum of life, God wants to do a new thing in and through you. He wants to do something in and through you that is bigger than your personality. It's bigger than your personality. So I need your help with me with this this morning. Shout number one. Number one, this is the first one. Jesus tests our natural temperament in order to reveal a supernatural template. Let me say that one more time. Jesus tests our natural temperament in order to reveal a supernatural template. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that this large crowd had started to form, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Those of you with similar personalities to Philip would understand the anxiety that is now forming in, in Philip. <laughs> The man that you are following, Jesus, the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, just said, feed all these people. And you mathematically went into a tizzy. What do you, what do you, what do you mean, Jesus? <laughs> Some of you right now, just thinking about Philip, you're like, your palms are sweating because you know what he is going through. Right At that point, he's pitting out, he's starting to shake, he's like, Jesus, what, Jesus, what, you don't understand. What do you mean, have, what, huh, there's a lot of people. More people than I know what to do, more people than I want to talk to. Let alone figure out how to, how to feed them. Because of brokenness, because of sin, because of past experiences, because of lack of understanding, many of us, including Peter, default to a natural disposition that is contrary to the design for our lives. See, our default mode is one of skepticism, doubt, unbelief, jadedness, cynicism. There's a default mode to every single one of our personalities, isn't there? This is why the rest of the disciples sat on the boat when Jesus was walking on water and he says, come to me. And the rest of the disciples were like, nope, not at all. And then there's Peter. <laughs> He's like, yes, I will. Tell me how. Right? He's the extrovert. He's the one that doesn't think. He's the one that has, like, there's nothing that happens here. It's all action. And Philip's in the back of the boat going, doesn't he understand that, like, mathematically speaking, that is an impossibility. There are certain things about the dynamics of H2O that Peter needs to understand if he's going to walk on water. How Jesus is doing it, I have no idea. But Peter, you're a moron. <laughs> See, Philip saw the situation one way. Jesus saw it another. Jesus then, we read, Jesus did this to test him. To test him. See, Jesus knew how Philip was going to respond. Because like us, Philip was going to respond with his natural answer and thought process. Come on, am I talking to anybody this morning? <laughs> now ultimately, Philip would still be privy to the miracle. That's the grace of God. We can still kick against everything that he wants to do, but Philip was still involved in the miracle. 
Philip still saw the miracle, but what would have happened if Philip would have been like, you know, this is, this is who I am, but maybe Jesus is trying to do something else. Those are the questions I ask. It's reading between the lines, so let's be careful with that. But what if, just what if, Philip would have went, man, what is he trying to do? Because there's a lot of people, so maybe, I've been around Jesus long enough to know that he turns water into wine, he walks on water, he heals people from the dead, he does a lot of really cool party tricks. Maybe, just maybe, there's something more that Jesus is trying to do. I like how one author put it when he said this of Philip. Philip was so obsessed with the temporal predicament that he was oblivious to the transcendent possibility that lay in the power of Jesus. He was so, have you ever been there before? Have you better, ever been so obsessed with the details that you forget to see the destiny? Have you ever been so obsessed with the little tiny details that you fail to see the design? The thing that God's trying to do. I think we do that, don't we? We get so fixated on what is right in front of us that we fail to pull back and realize who is for us. We get so locked into the problem that we fail to remember that Jesus is capable of so much more. See, heavenly design is built on faith, kingdom-mindedness, and the power of Jesus. On paper, the situation looked impossible, improbable, and unending. But for Jesus, that was the atmosphere conducive to a miracle. Think about it this way. The problems that we see is the context for Jesus' miraculous power. And while we try to work through our problems and we try to go ABC through them and and our personalities dictate how we're going to walk through them, we fail to realize that the problem, the situation, the thing that we're facing, that's the very context in which a miracle happens. We wonder why God isn't doing miracles anymore. It's because we won't let him into our mess. You hear that question all the time, well, if God's a miraculous God, how come he's not doing miracles anymore? Well, because he's a gentleman, he wants permission to come mess with your mess. He wants permission to do a miracle in our life. And so many of us never see the miraculous power of God because our personality, first and foremost, stops because we're so, we're so bound up or we're so running away from it or we've got whatever else is going on in our life that we actually don't give him permission to come manage our mess with his miracle. And so he's testing Philip. Listen, we have to be careful not to allow the policies of paper limit the person and the power of Christ. I love this conversation that takes place between Jeremiah and God in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God. Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overflow, to build and to plant. And what is happening right here is God is overriding his natural personality, his natural disposition. And he's saying, I got a new thing for you. I'm going to step over the boundary line of your personality and I'm going to touch your mouth. I'm going to anoint you. I'm going to put something in you that goes beyond 
beyond your natural disposition. And for some of us, we got to get to this place where we understand, I might be one way, but in the throes of God's grace and presence, I'm another way. I'm another way. He's trying to get him to understand that there may be a natural disposition, but he's not limited by what is natural, because we serve a God who is supernatural. Supernatural is not and shouldn't be a spooky word. For a lot of us, we go there. Like, I say supernatural, and you automatically think of Halloween. Here's the best definition I've ever heard for supernatural. Supernatural is simply God taking what is natural and putting a super on it. Okay? For all you Phillips, that doesn't work. But for us Peters, that is awesome. <laughs> right? He takes what is natural about it and he puts his super on it. It becomes supernatural. It's not spooky. It's not weird. It's supernatural. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians, God speaking through Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. I hope you love your Bible. This is all scripture, not my opinion, all right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Have you ever realized that before about yourself? Come on, do I got any foolish ones in here this morning? <laughs> I know I am. Every single day I wake up, every single Sunday I come in here and I, and, I, and I get up onto this platform to preach the word, I'm like, God, you really do use foolish things. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I want to say to us that when we give our personality the ability to dictate how we do life, whether it's positive or negative, it's just arrogance. Because what we're saying is that my personality trumps God's hand. It's arrogant at best. Or it's false humility. Which is destructive to our lives anyways. Because my boasting should be in the Lord. Who I am and what I do in life is because of Him. Not because of my personality, good or bad. I think we give our personality too much power. We're going to talk about that in a second. Number two, every shout, number two. This is the second thing we need to understand. Second observation is who we are can be a crutch for inaction or a catalyst for accomplishment. Who we are can be a crutch for inaction or a catalyst for accomplishment. You see, Philip answers Jesus and says 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little Jesus solicited a response from Philip, full well knowing how he would respond. But I believe Jesus was trying to get Philip to hear it for himself. Think about that. Why would Jesus do that? Because many times Jesus needs us to come face to face with the thing that's in our heart. The Bible tells us that over, out of the overflow of our heart, our what? Our mouth speaks. Have you ever said something and the minute you said it you went, whoa, where did that come from? Have you ever been shocked by what you've said before, whether to someone or to yourself? And I think this is what Jesus is doing right here. See, Philip was allowing his head to take over, his natural tendency and personality, and it became a crutch for him. It became an excuse for him, and Jesus wanted to test it. He wanted to push against it. We have to remember that this is applicable to all of us, not just those with a personality like Philip's, but all of us, no matter your background, your education, your abilities. It applies to us all. And I think this is a big one for the men in the house this morning. Do we allow our personality to be a crutch 
for an action or do we allow it to be the catalyst for accomplishment? I hear this all the time, especially from guys. I just don't worship that way. It's not who I am. Bro, I see you worship every Sunday when your team's ahead. Can we talk truthful in church this morning? I see you worship in ways that I get uncomfortable with. You took your shirt off and you painted stuff on you. Your shirt shouldn't be off. But I, I just, I'm just not inclined that way. Bro, you just rattled off 25 years of stats for the Utes, and you tell me you can't memorize one scripture. It's getting quiet in this church this morning. <laughs> Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this to be, to be condemning or anything. It's not that. Well, don't make me feel guilty. Don't shame me. I'm not shaming you. I'm asking a question and making an observation. And how we allow our personalities to dictate who we are versus who God's designed us to be. But man, and, and I'm talking to the guys this morning because there, there's a calling that's on our lives as men. I didn't have very many father figures in my life that taught me how to be a dad. When, when my boy came out, I was scared to death. And I told my wife, I articulated my wife, I don't know how I'm going to be a good father. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I've never, had, I've never had the thing in front of me. It's not my personality to, to, to be this way. And I remember her looking at me and saying, it doesn't need to be, because you have God the Father. That's why my wife is who she is. <laughs> See, when we say things like that, no matter what it is, we're revealing what's in our heart. See, we can't afford to allow our personality to stop us from engaging what God has designed us to be. Take that and apply it to any in every area of your relationship with God. I hear it all the time when I talk to people. Well, well, you're a pastor. That's your personality to love getting into the Bible. Can I tell you sometimes that is the hardest thing for me to do? Oh, a pastor said that. (laughs) Sometimes it's work. It's work. To crack open my commentaries and to read. Now, 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 don't get me wrong. Do I love it and am I in love with God? Yes, but man, sometimes there are days when I just crack it open and I'm like. Oh, you kidding me. So it's not about personality. It's not about temperament. It's about who I allow God to be in my life. It's about who you allow God to be in your life. What we're trying to do this morning is we're trying to work through these things that we give excuses to. We give our personality way too much power. Man, I just don't connect around here. I'm not an extrovert. So? I'm an introvert, and so it's just super hard. It's hard to connect, and I don't like touching people because they have germs. And if they hug me, I will punch them. Because that's just not my personality. Yeah, but the thing about it is, is God created a design for a life that goes beyond your personality. He called us and designed us for connection. That's not an introvert or an extrovert thing. That's a Jesus thing. We got to connect. It doesn't matter what your personality. Now, your personality makes it more difficult, but I would actually argue that on the extrovert side. Because extroverts, at a certain point, we get annoyed by them. Right? 
How many of you have seen Winnie the Pooh before? <laughs> How many of you love Winnie the Pooh? Winnie the Pooh is a social experiment. It is, right? I mean, think about the personalities that are... You have Pooh, this naive, honey-loving hippie. <laughs> Seriously. Just where, I'm going to destroy Winnie the Pooh for most of, you, most of you right now, right? So you have Pooh, and he's just kind of naive about everything. And then you have, you have Piglet. He's kind of insecure and very fearful, and he's, right? Like, he's socially awkward. Then you have the know-it-all owl who you just want to shoot out of the tree, right? And then you have Tigger. Oh, everybody loves Tigger. Why? Because Tigger's a wonderful thing, right? We're all pumped about that. But how many of you 15 minutes into Winnie the Pooh, you're like, Tigger, bring it down a notch? Just bring it down just a little bit. And you have the rabbit, he's kind of crunchy, right? Just like hard to deal with and, and very pragmatic on things. And then you have the boy who tries to wrangle all of these things together. Try to lead all of these nuanced personalities. And I actually think it's a beautiful picture of what God's trying to do in our generation. It's a beautiful picture of what God's trying to do in the church. And then you have Eeyore. God bless us. <laughs> right? And Eeyore and Tigger are the polar opposites from each other. And if you ever watch, like, you really dial in, Tigger annoys Eeyore. Like, just drives him nuts. But Eeyore, Eeyore drives Tigger crazy. And these are, the, these are the personalities. And if we're not careful, we will allow our personalities, no matter what they are, to limit us from what God wants us to truly experience. True community, true joy, true purpose, true life. But there's also great positives to our personalities. I don't want to focus just on the negatives, but we got to understand that most of the time we allow the negatives to dictate a lot, don't we? Number three, every shot number three. And this is the last one. Our personality provides us with both power and poison. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. This is Paul writing, and he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Everybody shout flesh. flesh. Come on, shout flesh. flesh. Turn your neighbor and say, it's fleshy. <laughs> Turn your other neighbor and say, that was weird. That was weird. <laughs> but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. Come on, dig into this scripture with me, if you will, and, and let's see if we can identify with what Paul is, is saying. For I don't understand... What I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that Sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is probably one of the most profound, insightful, and vulnerable verses found within the entirety of Scripture. 
See, Paul brings to words something that most of us are afraid to profess, the inconsistency of who we are in relationship to our personality and our being. Writer and author Salvatore R. Madai wrote a book called Personality Theories, a Comparative Analysis, third edition. And he says this, personality is a stable set of characteristics and tendencies that determine those commonalities and differences in the psychological behavior, thoughts, feelings, and actions. Of people that have continuity in time that may not be easily understood as the sole result of the social and biological pressures of the moment. That's a big kind of definition of, of personality, but this is what he was saying. Our personality controls and dictates everything, but there's this overriding thing that helps us use our personality appropriately. It's called character. Character. And someone put it like this about character. Character is what you do with your personality. We love the term character. We get all excited about it. Character and integrity. Our businesses are built on character and integrity. My truck is built on character and integrity. Right? And then we ask the question, if you're like me, what does that even mean? And I love this definition. Character is what you do with your personality. When it's the best part of your personality and it's the weakest part of your personality, character is what you do with it. See, the best part of our personalities can cause us to be arrogant at best. The negative parts of our personalities can cause us to be broken at best. Character is what you do with that. Our personalities, church, listen. They have the power, they have the ability to be power or poison in our lives. The redemptive hand of Jesus is what changes that. The redemptive hand of Jesus is what grabs a hold of that. The redemptive hand of Jesus is what takes our power, the power of my personality, and uses it for his glory. But it also is the very thing that takes the poison of my personality and overcomes it and allows me to step beyond it so that it doesn't affect every area of my life. That is his redemptive hand. That is who he is in our lives. So this morning, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're fighting against. But I want to invite you as we stand to our feet, I want to invite you into the most amazing relationship that you could ever have, and that is a relationship with Jesus. Come on, I invite everybody to stand to your feet right now. Bow your head and close your eyes. For some of us this morning, we've yet to relinquish control to Jesus. We've yet to allow him the space to redefine our lives to work with our personality, to do what only he can do. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're gonna pray a prayer together this morning. And there's nothing special in these words, but rather the heart from which these words come. And I wanna invite you, if you've yet to say yes to Jesus, make this your moment, make this your stance, make this your faith step this morning. Come on, as loud as you can, everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now and I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.